from Built It Productions and Luminary Media, it's wisdom from the top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, General David Petraeus. So we did the fight to Baghdad that started in late March. And I remembered at a certain point in time, fairly early on, I think it was probably in the first week or so, I just sort of realized that all the assumptions uh, were not exactly turning out the way <laughs> they'd been briefed. Lessons and leadership from one of the most legendary military leaders in American history. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. So in America's active duty army today, there are around 470,000 people. And only about a dozen of them are four-star generals. That is the highest rank you can achieve, at least right now. So if you are in the army, it is way more likely that you will be struck by lightning than it is you'll become a four-star general. Of course, that's for good reason, because being part of the top leadership is a huge responsibility. General David Petraeus is one of the few who got there. And even among generals, he's one of the few who today is a household name. I actually first met General Petraeus in 2003 when I was covering the early days of the Iraq War. And it was around that time when his star began to rise. In 2007, he became the overall commander of multinational forces in Iraq and led a new and controversial strategy known as the Surge. Later, in 2010, Petraeus took over command of the U.S.-led coalition forces in Afghanistan. And then, in 2011, he retired from the army. And President Obama appointed him director of the CIA. But that did not end well, as you will hear later. But before all of that, David Petraeus spent his childhood in a small town in New York along the Hudson River. His mom was a librarian, and his dad was a captain in the Merchant Marine who immigrated to the U.S. from the Netherlands during World War II. And the idea of being an officer in the Army, it was something that David Petraeus was introduced to at an early age because the town where he grew up, Cornwall-on-Hudson, was very close to the U.S. Military Academy. You know, we were in the shadow, literally, uh, of West Point. And I remember one time realizing that at least half of the customers of my newspaper route, I delivered morning papers for two and a half years when I was a kid, 
were either at West Point, graduates of West Point, or in some way connected to the U.S. Military Academy and, and the Army. And at some point uh, in my teen years, uh, you know, you often choose to be like someone, like Mike, as we have often mm-hmm. said. And in this case, I admired the the cadets and the products of the U.S. Military Academy. And that, I think, was why I ended up deciding to go to West Point. So as a kid, you were already, I mean, you, had, you, you were seeing these young cadets and, and then the officers from West Point. Um, so already as a kid, you, you started to think, I, I want to be that. I, wanna, I want that to be me. It took a while, actually. Um, my parents were, certainly weren't pushing me in that direction. I think, frankly, my dad, as a former ship captain, would have preferred that I went to Annapolis. But as I got into my teen years, uh, I did realize that I was admiring. And again, you know, the impact in Cornwall was so substantial. I had a math teacher who had actually been a professor at West Point, the coach of our soccer team, which won the championship our senior year. I uh, had actually coached soccer uh, at West Point. Even our Sunday school teacher was actually a ski coach at West Point. So hmm. there was an awful lot of affinity for that. And I, I realized that as I got into my junior and senior year and that's and decided to accept the appointment that I received to West Point. What was it about that path that was attractive to you? For many 17, 18-year-old men, they don't want to follow rules. You know, they don't they don't want to they don't want that discipline. They want to go out and um, and and enjoy the world on their terms. Did you appreciate that discipline? Um, no, not necessarily. No. Uh, I had my doubts about it at various times, as every cadet did. And you know, we all flirted with various acts of <laughs> indiscipline, if you will. I mean, we would grow our sideburns as long as we possibly could. Uh, we would try to express our individuality in some fashion or other. That looks pretty trivial when you look back at it, but mm. you know, these were. And actually, frankly, one summer uh, in between my sophomore and junior year, I had a couple of weeks of leave out in California, and I uh, learned what my counterparts in civilian universities were enjoying and, and, again, did have some doubts about whether I should return for the start of my junior year or not. But inevitably, rationality sets in. And mm-hmm. what it really was was I loved the variety and the competition in the different elements that comprise that variety. Hmm. Ultimately, I was a distinguished cadet, a top 5% uh, graduate academically. I was a cadet captain on the brigade staff, um, and I was a varsity letterman. So you have academic, athletic, and leadership activities uh, where you're constantly being evaluated. And there was, frankly, something about that the competitive nature of this. And by the way, this was not kindler or gentler. They used to post your grades uh, on the walls in the sally ports at West Point. You could all see how everyone did. You literally sat in your individual classes by your rank in that class. What did you like about the competitiveness? Did you was it was it to win? Was it for bragging rights? What what was it in your mind that it did for you? Well, one of the one of my core beliefs that I've actually imparted to others is that life is a competitive endeavor, and you have to embrace that concept. It's, you know, you don't get a trophy just for showing up in real life. That doesn't mean that at times you're not competing to be the best team player or to make your team the best in a team of teams. But 
Competition, I think, is a way of life. I mean, life does reward those who are best in any endeavor. And in fact, I actually took the pre-med program there. And as I look back on it, as I was coming to the end of my time at West Point, I realized I'd only done it because it was the most competitive academic endeavor in which you could engage. It was sort of like the Mount Everest of, of academic pursuits. But I realized I didn't have a calling to be a doctor. Um, I just enjoyed the academic competition just as I enjoyed the competition on the athletic fields. Huh. And that's where I started to enjoy and to realize that maybe I think I had some of the elements that can enable one to be a, a good leader. So, so you were, I mean, you were obviously a top student at West Point, succeeding academically and athletically. Was it clear to you when you were there as, as you got closer to graduation that you were going to make this your career? This was going to be your life? I don't know that any of us, you know, just had that sense of absolute certainty that, you know, we're going to serve to 30 years as the usual aspiration. And then if you're promoted to general officer, you can stay somewhat longer. And I ultimately did over 37 years in uniform. But certainly there was a sense that this is a pretty special endeavor. I was very fortunate um, going through ranger school, which is a very in physically demanding course, but it's really about leadership under enormous pressure, uh, hmm. the pressure of immense fatigue. Uh, in those days, we only got one meal a day for parts of that eight and a half week, the final uh, week and a half or so. You're walking very substantial distances uh, almost every day under rucksack and all the rest of this. And you're getting these missions, and there's a simulated enemy and and I was number one in that particular course. In fact, I learned much later that I'd actually broken the point record uh, that existed at that time. But, you know, you realize that you're, you're reasonably good at this. Then uh, I was the UN chief of operations uh, for the force in Haiti, I served a whole year in Bosnia as a NATO uh, one star uh, and, and so forth. And so by the time I actually commanded a division in combat, uh, during the first year in Iraq, I think I had a notion of what we needed to do that was reasonably well-developed. You know, General Pachez, most of or all of the people that we interview for the show developed their leadership skills in a less linear way, right? They, they worked at one company or they went somewhere else. But it seems to me like the way it worked, at least in your case and maybe for many officers in the Army, is clear. There is a linear path. You have some leadership responsibility, then a bit more, and then a bit more, and you do this over a number of years. And when you get to the the consequential one, let's say in your case, it was the first really consequential one was leading the 101st and, and leading them in Mosul in Iraq. You had a few decades under your belt of smaller leadership roles. Is that a better way? Did that make it easier for you when it came time to do to do something incredibly consequential? Very much so, yeah. Look, I think the military is unique, uh, in fact, in I'm not aware of anywhere else uh, in industry or in, in the U.S. government that provides the kind of sequential uh, professional development courses. So you have 
If you're a commissioned officer, uh, a West Point or ROTC, then there's a basic course a few years after that. There's the advanced course. If some years after that, there's a staff college. Years after that, you go to the war college. Even after you're promoted to general officer, there's a capstone course. But then there's the experiential component where between these different courses, you're obviously doing it. Um, so you're a platoon leader as a lieutenant, a company commander as a captain, a staff officer as a major, then a battalion commander as a lieutenant colonel. Again, if you're fortunate, because of course, this is very much a pyramid structure. It's a wonderful system, but of course, it is costly in the sense that you have a substantial population of each of the services in school at any given time. And not only that, but also those who are instructing rather than being out in the ranks conducting operations. Yeah. You know, you've talked about being really competitive, and, and you're certainly not known as a guy who keeps his opinions to himself. But, but I mean, in an institution like the Army that is so hierarchical, did you have to keep some of your opinions to yourself at least until you, you know, got to that role as a commanding general of an Army division? Well, I um, didn't always succeed at that. But I think you do learn to be, you know, a bit restrained, I guess. I, but I, gosh, I can remember, for example, when General Galvin, when he was a two-star and he was coming into a division where I'd served for two and a half years already as a company commander and a battalion operations officer, and he asked me for some advice or my thoughts on what he should do, and I gave him a list that included replacing a number of the very senior folks uh, in that post. Hmm. Um, and I remember he actually called me into the office and he said, this is really very valuable. Uh, are there any other copies of this? Uh, because if there are, I'd like you to destroy them. Um, <laughs> so I was not reticent in that regard over the years. But you have to do it in a measured and considerate way, I think. You, one of my lessons from you know the years, I ended up eventually having ended my career as a general officer with six straight commands, five of which were in combat. And obviously, people start to ask you, you know, what have you learned? Um, and you should uh, promote and protect the iconoclasts. <laughs> uh, these are individuals whose views are, you know, a bit out of the standard. But they're often the ones who can tell you that, you know, the emperor has no clothes or that, you know, I also did believe that if your ideas are actually not quite persuasive, I mean, if you can't persuade 90% of the folks or at least 80% of the wisdom of your great ideas, then perhaps you should re-examine your great ideas. Maybe In you're fact, wrong. a couple yeah. of times, yeah, you know, I mean, once or twice I had somebody gently tell me, again, with great respect, sir, Perhaps you should go sit under a tree until that thought passes. If you're not doing that, again, if you're a, someone who says, yes, sir, before the, your senior officer has even completed the thought, um, I think you're probably not going to be as useful as you otherwise might be. When you got to Mosul in March of, of 2003 as a commander of the 101st Airborne Division, um, and you, you saw what was going on around you, um, were you skeptical of that entire enterprise? Were you skeptical at all about whether this Iraq thing was going to work? Oh, I developed that much earlier than getting to Mosul. We didn't actually arrive in Mosul until May. So we did the May, fight to Baghdad that. that started in late March. Yeah. 
And I remembered at a certain point in time, fairly early on, I think it was probably in the first week or so, I just sort of realized that all the assumptions that we'd been given uh, about this endeavor uh, were not exactly turning out the way <laughs> they'd been briefed. You know, the idea that mm. the Iraqis weren't going to fight, they were all going to surrender and just come over to our side, they were going to help us, uh, all the rest of this. Uh, this was starting to look to be a much more complex and confused. And, you know, there was fighting. Some of it was quite fierce. And I started to realize again that you know, we're going to have to leave substantial amounts of combat forces to to run these areas, actually, in a sense, to administer them until we could get Iraqi partners. And then we were given something like 36 hours to immediately air assault north to Mosul because the city— it just could not handle the level of, of unrest and violence. There had been 17 civilians killed in a riot. And so we immediately mounted an operation to go up there. And frankly, we, what we did was implement what ultimately uh, proved to be the, the right answer during the surge. Uh, we, had in, we had small elements living among the people. And we just started pursuing activities that seemed to be very natural uh, for those of us who had done essentially nation building or rebuilding in places like Haiti and Bosnia and just started doing that. Yeah. You know, um, at that time and, and, and after sort of the initial successes of your counterinsurgency strategy in Mosul, you got you started to get a lot of attention. I, I was a reporter there. I, I interviewed you in Mosul in, in May of, of 2003. I remember sitting on plastic chairs at a forward operating base. Um, <laughs> And and as you became more prominent, um, you attracted the attention of political figures in Washington. Um, you, you you eventually got on the cover of Time or Newsweek. I can't remember. And as a result of that, you also got some, you know, negative attention. Sure. Um, sure. Anonymous comments from your from your cohort. You know, from uh, other officers who. Presumably, there was some jealousy as well. How did you feel about about that? Was that personally hurtful for you? Or Well, or? look, I made some mistakes at times. I mean, I remember when I saw the Newsweek cover. This is when I came back in a third star tour because the others that I attracted attention from, frankly, were Secretary Rumsfeld and, and I think even the president. Mm. And because And I pretty quickly, in fact, was called to go back over to Iraq um, visited everywhere in the country, came back, reported out to Secretary Rumsfeld, had a series of recommendations. He said, great, get back over to Iraq, uh, and you can implement those recommendations. Yeah. And, you know, in the early weeks of that mission, frankly, I probably shouldn't have been uh, as accessible to the press. Um, but, no, I, look, when I saw that Newsweek cover, I knew that that was not good. You know, it's actually titled, Can This Man Save Iraq? Um, now, if you're a three-star general and you have a four-star in country and another four-star over him and then the Joint Chiefs and a bunch of others, that's probably not the best headline to see. So, you know, again, this is a place where I did make some mistakes. And, look, I think... You know, life is not full of high-five moments, and I really learned right. that later on, as you well know. And, and I think part of life is a degree of resilience and determination and also just, you know, to be sufficiently self-effacing. You realize when you've made a mistake and you've got to figure out how to subordinate your own personal ambition for the greater good. You've got to temper that by realizing that you're always part of a team, and that is a, within a team of teams. 
Um, and that's sometimes easier than it is at other times. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. When when you took on increasingly complicated assignments, right, um, whatever they were, there were definitely missions that were almost impossible to solve. They were going to be impossible to solve. But were you essentially in a position where you didn't have a choice? You had to do it? You felt professionally committed to doing it, to saying, yes, I will take this on? Certainly, yeah. I remember when... Secretary Gates was the one who called me for the surge in Iraq. We were actually out visiting my father the last time I saw him. He was in an uh, assisted living facility outside Los Angeles and driving to see him at Christmas in 2006. And, I, you know, I wanted to have a conversation with Secretary Gates. But, you know, at the end of the day, I said, obviously, the answer to your request has to be yes. But, look, I I remember— when I was back in Iraq for the surge, and it was day two, and we did a patrol with a, several different units, so I wanted to get a feel for the situation in Baghdad. One of the areas was so, in a sense, out of control, so insecure. And I came back from that day in Baghdad, and when I was sure the door was closed, uh, I actually put my head down in the desk and said, man— um, and we had six months uh, because there were approaching enough votes in the Senate to have a vote 
on either limiting the appropriations or perhaps some other restriction on the war in Iraq. And I'd had to agree mm. to come back at the six-month mark for testimony. But I knew that we had to turn this thing. And this is going to be very, very tough. And indeed, our casualties uh, went up close to the all-time high in Iraq uh, in the months of May and June of 2007, so some four or more months into this. But by the time we got to the testimony in September of 2007, violence was down by way over a half, as I recall. So we could show results. And ultimately, of course, it was driven down by some 80, 85% over the course of the 19 and a half months that I was privileged to command the multinational force in Iraq during the surge. When we come back after the break, how General Petraeus, after a stellar career as a military leader, dealt with a very public failing. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top from Built It Productions and Luminary Media. Welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So after General David Petraeus led troops in Iraq and later in Afghanistan, he retired from the army. It was August 2011, and President Obama had a new challenge for him, director of the Central Intelligence Agency. The Senate confirmed Petraeus by a unanimous vote. But a little over a year later, he resigned. The FBI discovered he was having an affair with a woman who was writing his biography. It was a stunning fall from grace for one of the most respected generals in U.S. military history. You had all of these successes, all of these incredibly public successes. You were celebrated. Yes, you had your detractors and people who were jealous, but you had reached the top of the greasy pole, right, as some have said. Um, And then in 2012, a very public failing. You had to resign as the head of the CIA. Did you think about, at that time, how you were going to start to recover from that? Well, not initially. Obviously, it was, you know, a devastating experience personally uh, for my family, um, indeed for a number of supporters. You may recall, I mean, a, a confirmation vote for the CIA director position was, I think, 94 to 0 at a time of fairly substantial partisanship already. And I made a mistake, and I realized that I had demonstrated poor judgment um, and that a president couldn't have a director of the CIA who had demonstrated poor judgment. I mean, one of the most painful episodes of my life, of course, was first explaining this to Mm. my wife um, on the day that I and then going to see the president in the Oval Office. And, you know, you're just trying to get through each day, I think. And that, I had to tell my mother-in-law and our children and everything else and let them down. I'd let down a ton of people. Look, I often talk to folks and, you know, I even say, you know, life has to go on. Uh, but the truth is, actually, life doesn't have to go on. And that's, you know, it's that kind of experience that 
acquaint you with the kinds of emotions that can lead people to do things that that don't go on, um, which is a horrific um, thought and uh, terrible. But again, life does go on eventually, and you got to pull the pieces back together. And um, you know, I remember. Ironically, I was thinking the other day there was an article the week before I think the the election that eventually reelected President Obama, and it said of all of his appointees, Petraeus is bulletproof. Um, and I remember reading that, and I I realized that that might not prove to be the case, to put it mildly. You know, there's there's no playbook, right, to deal with crisis. There there are playbooks to think about leadership and how to run organizations, but crisis is different because they're all different. Well, a special personal crisis, I think. And you know, I do remember reading. You know, Churchill called them. I think it was his black dog days. And I mean, these were these were my black dog days. And the depths of whatever were pretty low. Uh, but gradually, again, you've got to reemerge. And I'd had people that said, when you're ready to talk about what you will do after you, in your post-government life, um, come see me. And some of them, mm-hmm. I mean, I started off and I was uneasy and I'd say, I'm really sorry for letting <laughs> you down and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, people, a fair amount of people are, are pretty forgiving and and thankfully, there were some that realized, uh, I guess, that there was something that I can contribute to what it was that they were doing. And, and ultimately, there were a number of different offers. But this is a good number of months um, after resigning and after leaving government. I mean, it seems to me that if there is a lesson to be learned from your experience, it's that building up goodwill over the course of one's career over decades really pays off because people will be willing to give you the benefit of the doubt if you did that. But if you didn't, if you were unkind or ungenerous, people will gladly see you fall. And and in your case, there was a lot of goodwill. People were prepared to forgive you. Well, I was very fortunate in that regard. And again, I'd like to think that, you know, I had... Look, again, I'd not just been accessible to the press. I'd been accessible to folks in the ranks. I used to give out my email address to captains when I would meet with them. And I'd say, you owe it to your soldiers that if you're ever truly frustrated with your chain of command and you think you're not being heard in the way that you should, and and this is a life and death endeavor that we're engaged in here, after all, um, you shouldn't hesitate to email me. Again, I'd like to think that 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 did help. And whatever the case, I was very, very fortunate. And I have been incredibly fortunate in my post-government time. Uh, I'm privileged to be a partner in one of the world's biggest global investment firms, KKR, and the chair of the KKR Global Institute. Sort of part-time, actually, I was a full-time professor, at least once a week teaching at the Honors College of the City University of New York for three and a half years, and then a week per semester out at USC and a fellow at Harvard and some boards and and I have tried to give back, by the way. I mean, I have, I'm on a, well over a dozen veteran service organizations and still very, very active. I want to I go back to your time in the Army for a moment. Um, 
Task about something that, that can make any leadership role hard, and you know that's rivalries, right? Did you have rivalries? I mean, did you ever have experiences where you kind of turned a rival into a collaborator, like you know how President Obama did with Hillary Clinton or, or Ronald Reagan did with George H.W. Bush? Um, they turned them into partners. Well, yeah, sure. And, you know, there were cases where you end up actually, you sometimes get promoted before another person who had actually previously been promoted before you. And again, needless to say, there's a bit of of rivalry. I mean, there was a guy, I ended up commanding a brigade in the 82nd Airborne Division, a unit in which I'd never actually served. Now, I'd I had been an air, a paratrooper. I was a master parachutist and so forth. But again, I'd never been in a unit. And I had people come up to me and I mean, there were at least two individuals that very clearly <laughs> communicated that they should have been the commander uh, of that brigade. Huh. I mean, one of them, both of them, I think, had actually commanded battalions in that brigade in combat, which I had not done. But then you work together. Um, I, I, in fact, there is a truism, I think, that the personal informs the professional. And I think one of the jobs of a leader is to try to keep the personal from overriding the professional, if you see what I mean. I remember there were two nuclear theorists, for example. I could never understand why one of them, who I admired greatly, and I studied very intensely in graduate school in the staff college, and I couldn't understand why he had taken a certain position on a particular issue. And I went to one of the professors emeritus, in fact, at Princeton when I was there, and I, I knew he knew this particular strategist, and I said, I asked him, why was it that he took that position? And he said, oh, it's very simple. He hated this other individual. And I said, well, what does that have to do with it? <laughs> well, the other individual had taken the logical position first, so he had to take the other position. That's what I think you have to try to avoid. How do you make sure you are still growing as a leader? I mean, you're not running huge CIA or a division or CENTCOM, but you are leading an organization and presumably you still need to figure out how to do certain things. So how, you know, when people come to you and say, hey, I need your leadership expertise, what do you do for yourself? How do you grow? Well, I've deliberately, I've always felt that you should actually create for yourself action-forcing mechanisms. In other words, you publicly commit, in a sense, to certain activities. I remember telling, for example, the faculty, the head of the department at West Point, in which I was going to teach while I was still in grad school, I said, I'm not just going to do the master's. I want to get all the coursework and everything else and general exams and language and everything else for the PhD, and I'm going to finish a PhD, or I told others I'm going to do a marathon in under three hours, or you're going to, so you create these action-forcing mechanisms for yourself through a sense through public commitments. By the way, you hate yourself or second-guess yourself many times after doing that until it, you finally accomplish what it is that you said that you would you would do. In this case, I've, I've tried to pursue a variety of different initiatives, uh, say, again, as a senior fellow at Harvard, non, non-resident, obviously, uh, where we built, for example, one year a, a strategic leadership website at the Belfer Center. And so what you're doing is you're constantly refreshing and updating your intellectual capital. Yeah. And um, look, I'm 66 years old. Some of my West Point classmates are completely retired and enjoying it, and that's the right decision for them. But I still want intellectual stimulation. So I just have one final question for you, General Petraeus, um, which is this. I mean, do you think 
that most leaders are born that way, or, or do you think they become that way? I'm one who thinks that it's a mix of the two, that there are certain probably qualities or capabilities or, or traits or attributes that one either has or doesn't have, but that's not enough. Uh, I think then you have to, to exercise those, you have to build them, you have to develop them. Uh, as I mentioned, it's about experiencing leadership. It's about studying, formally studying, and then studying on your own and constantly uh, refining the big ideas that are guiding you. Because at the end of the day, particularly for strategic leaders, um, success or failure hinges uh, on the big ideas. And, and success really is not possible without getting the big ideas right um, and so, look, again, life is a competitive endeavor. There's something certainly to luck and timing as well. But then I'd go on and say that luck is also what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Mm. And I really felt at times that, you know, I'd been preparing all my life uh, for some of the opportunities that did present themselves. and. And I'd like to think, again, that that preparation did indeed provide me the intellectual capital and the physical stamina and the professional experience and so forth uh, to try to, to do as, as well as we possibly could in those particular situations. That's retired U.S. Army General David Petraeus. Today, he's a partner at the global investment firm KKR and the chair of the KKR Global Institute. By the way, early in his career, Petraeus was actually shot in the chest by accident by an M16 rifle, not in combat, but during a live fire exercise at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Obviously, he survived and made a full recovery, but he says he was lucky. If that bullet had been a few inches to the right or the left, he might not be here today. Thanks for listening to the show this week. Our music was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Built It Productions and Luminary Media. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.